0: The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being, as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co., established 1977, have personal and domestic water filters, which turns your ordinary tap water into great tasting, alkaline, ionized mineral water, which removes up to 99.9% of fluorite, heavy metals, chemicals, and bacteria, so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model, and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Watersco Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage at PeteEvans.com to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Paul Saladino is the leading authority on the science and application of the carnivore diet. He has used this diet to reverse autoimmunity, chronic inflammation and mental health issues in hundreds of patients, many of whom had been told their conditions were untreatable. In addition to his personal podcast, Fundamental Health, he can be found featured on numerous podcasts, including The Minimalists, The Model Health Show, Bulletproof Radio, The Dr Gundry Podcast, The Ben Greenfield Podcast, Dr McCola Health Theory and many others. He has also appeared on the Doctor's TV show, released his first book titled The Carnivore Code, Unlocking the Secrets to Optimal Health by Returning to Our Ancestral Diet. To find out more about Paul Saladino, please visit his website, carnivoremd.com. That's C-A-R-N-I-V-O-R-E-M-D dot com. Paul, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. How are you, brother? I'm doing really good. Thanks for having me on, my friend. Mate, this is going to be a a wonderful conversation because I want to talk to you about all things meat and all things that aren't meat as well. But first, I'd love to start off with exactly what type of doctor are you? So I'm an MD.
1: I'm a medical doctor, which in the US is sort of the mainstream allopathic doctor. I did four years of medical school, and then I did four years of residency. And in the U.S., we can specialize. My residency was in psychiatry, which is mental health stuff. And then I have training in functional medicine, but I practice more broadly now. I really think that mostly in medicine, specialties don't Mm -hmm. serve patients because the balkanization of The way that we treat people and the schism in the way that we think about patients and health is really only bad for patients and good for pharmaceutical companies and imaging providers. But I think that, you know, from a psychiatric perspective, everything is connected, you know, everything is connected with the brain and mood. And I think you could say that about any specialty. And so, I think, about things much more
0: broadly at this point. It feels that way that more and more doctors, especially the ones that we get on the podcast, and I guess the ones you talk to and uh, are your colleagues, are really going down this holistic path where we're talking about or looking at a human being. Not only we're talking about the body, but we're talking about the body, mind, the spirit, and mm-hmm. also the environment. And How much of a change has that been for you since you started your medical, I guess, indoctrination, if that's the right word?
1: (laughs) I've had quite a long medical indoctrination because I was actually a physician assistant in cardiology before I went to medical school. I don't know if you guys have physician assistants in Mm -hmm. Australia. They're sort of like nurse practitioners, like a mid-level provider that can Uh, prescribed medications, but hasn't done a doctorate degree in medicine. So I did that in cardiology, then I went back to medical school. But from the beginning in medical school, we are taught in lessons and lecture blocks that encompass body systems, quote unquote. And I think that's the beginning of the reinforcement of this incorrect concept that these systems are somehow separate. Now, in the learning process, I understand the construct is Useful. And it's, you can't teach someone about the body, you know, from the top down or the toes up. But I wish that in medical education, and perhaps this will be one of my projects in the future, there would be some sort of integration of all of that at the end. We've taught you about the endocrine system. We've taught you about the heart. We've taught you about the gut. We've taught you about the brain. Now let's show you how they're all connected because we know they are. I mean, it's absolutely the endothelium lining. The cells of your blood vessels are essentially the same endothelial cells that are lining the inside of your gut, and the same endothelial cells that are lining the uh, blood-brain barrier and the interface between cerebrospinal fluid and the nervous system, the central nervous system, and the rest of your body. And so. When something affects, for instance, an endothelial cell in your blood vessel, you know it's also affecting your gut and your blood-brain barrier, and therefore your brain. But it starts early in the process of medical education that doctors start to think, oh, I'm just going to do endocrinology. I'm just going to do cardiology. And when I was working in cardiology as a PA, I was told repeatedly by the physicians that I worked with, who were well-meaning, very intelligent physicians, to just keep it within the heart box, you know? Don't go outside of your box. And that's a narrative that happens a lot in medicine. Stay in your lane. Mm. Don't go onto somebody else's turf and treat somebody else's, you
0: know, organ system. It's not good for people. Well, it nearly seems like that's the way society is in this current day and age. One of my trades is I learned to become a chef. And if ever I step out of that box, so to speak, people are like, hey, 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 get back into that box, Pete. You shouldn't be talking about anything other than what you're trained to do, which is cooking. i are like, well, I'm a cook probably a certain amount of hours per day. And over the years, I've cooked a million dishes with these two hands, but there's a lot more to me than just being a cook, hence why we're doing this podcast now. I love it. It's really interesting that people like to put people into these boxes when you and I know that we are multifaceted beings. And as you said, I mean, what's the perfect definition of a human being for you? from your perception?
1: The perfect definition of a human being. Uh, (laughs) I'm not even sure how to answer that one, Pete. I mean, help me me understand where to go with that. That, That's a broad question.
0: The nutritional advice that we've been, I guess, force-fed... Our parents were force-fed. Our grandparents were force-fed. So you've got to eat low-fat. You've got to be doing this. You've got to be running this, talking, all of these things that we should be doing to be the perfect human being. And we can see where that has led us as a, I guess, a Western society, just walking out the front door and, and walking into a major city now or an airport or a shopping center. You can see that potentially that information that we trusted our professionals to guide us with hasn't delivered us the perfect human being. And I'm talking about ill health here and mental illness and all of these issues that are troubling modern day human beings. So I know, I know you're a big proponent of the ancestral diet, and we're going to dive into some really interesting stuff here about food. But it's like, is a human being really that complicated or do we just need to keep it really simple? Is that sort of the perfect design for us is to have this really simple sort of formula for how we can live our lives and connect with each other? That's where I'm going with it.
1: I see, I see. Okay, now I get it. So I think this is a fantastic point that you're alluding to. I observe that within the society of the Western world at large, it seems like we are being told that it's okay to be sick and that Mm. everybody gets sick and this is your family history, whether it's heart disease or high blood pressure or autoimmune disease like Hashimoto's thyroiditis or inflammatory bowel disease. There's this subtle narrative that human beings break down and I think that we need to rebel against that. Hmm. And I think that there are very few people on the earth that have serious congenital issues in their genetics. I think most of us are are pretty lucky and should be grateful for the beautifully healthy and potentially quite usable and strong bodies that we have. And if we are not feeling as though we are high energy, good mood, good libido and good body composition, we should not accept the mainstream narrative that quote unquote, you're just getting older, or it's just your family history. That to me is not true. That's baloney. And I think that those things arise, as you're suggesting, because of a discordance between our history, where we've come from, and our current environment. And that yes, by returning to looking at ancestral themes, we can come up with a pretty simple solution that can get most of us almost all the way back to, quote unquote, a perfect human being or optimal health. And as I suggested, I would define that as, man, you're kicking ass in like almost every area of your life. And everybody's going to have some days where they're stressed, or their kids are sick, or they didn't sleep well because they have a presentation at work. But for the most part, I think the majority of people on this planet have the potential to really feel good, and to really kick a lot of ass. And it's not that complicated. And it doesn't involve taking hundreds of dollars of fancy supplements or a lot of pharmaceuticals. And it's just a very simple solution. That's the book I'm writing, you know, that I've written. And that's what I talk about all the time. So I love that you're going there. I do think that it's a fairly simple solution. And it really
0: should be right. I want to get into the simple solution in a minute, but I want to keep going on this track for a minute because last night I put Netflix on, there was a preview for a new show that just launched on Netflix. (laughs) It was to do with our DNA and the genetics and how we can alter that in the future. And basically what they were saying in just the preview that I saw and I didn't go down the rabbit hole to watch and I just wasn't in the mood to have that information in my head at the time. But what they were saying, what they were pinpointing to is, as you said, we have this genetics, uh, our DNA, and some of it is hereditary. And what they're saying is that we can alter that so that we no longer have children that are going to be born with this disease or this gene defect will be fixed in the future. Now, this many ways of looking at this and I can see the potential and why people would be really attracted to this, a healthy future generation, which is what we're all here for and what we're all, I guess, wanting for the future. But for me, it nearly seems like, okay, we're going to change our genes or improve them in a way so that we can still continue to live this really fucked up existence where we're ingesting whatever we want. <laughs> you know. It feels like it's the next stage of medicine where it's like, oh, we'll actually just make you come out better and then continue as you are and we'll worry about the illness later on down the track. Sorry if that's long-winded, but it just it popped up last night and I'm like, oh,
1: what is this? I love that. I would say it's completely misguided. I haven't seen the preview. I don't know what diseases they are claiming to be able to cure or hope to be able to cure in the future. But if they include diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, autoimmune disease, newsflash, we already know how to fix those. You know, that's not your genetics. Like you suggested, that's a discordance between where we've come from in the past and our current environment. And that is such a misguided thing. I think people want to be able to eat bagels and donuts and candy bars and live a fast-paced life where they eat processed food, whether it's a power bar or you know some kind of junk food thing that's sold as healthy and have optimal health, or they want to eat Pizza three days of the week and not have an autoimmune disease. But that is not the direction that we should be going in. And that's not the type of genetic medicine that we need to be doing. As I suggested earlier, there are a very small number of people who are, you know, kind of tragically, sadly born with congenital illness. But Mm. that is like 0.1% of the illness that we see in medicine, maybe 0.5. So 99.5% of what we see in medicine is environmental and evolutionary ancestral discordance. It's completely correctable with lifestyle and the choices we make and is not written into our DNA
0: immutably. Mm. The show is actually called Unnatural Selection and the un is crossed out. So it just bewilders me. I see it. And I see what's coming and I just actually interviewed a a futurist on the podcast called Jamie Metzl and he was talking about the medical breakthroughs that is going to happen with all of this technology. And I hear what you're saying about it comes down to a choice. I even look around my immediate friends and family, a lot of them do not want to be making this simple choice. They would rather continue on with the way of living their life and Still eat that pizza every week, or still eat that bagel, and still have that irritable bowel, and they can live with it, or they can have that little bit of that flare up in the knee and live with it. And I'm not here to judge, I'm just observing, like you said before. But what I'm interested in is practical solutions. So let's talk about what you've created here, and where your experience has taken you, which is about the carnivore code. And I have interviewed Michaela Peterson and also Dr. Sean Baker on the podcast before, and what they say makes a lot of sense. But you being a doctor that's devoted a good portion of your study and your research and even you as a guinea pig, I want to get it down to the nitty-gritty of why an ancestral and especially slash carnivore approach can be a simple solution for people.
1: I think that it's written into our DNA. In the book, which is coming out in a few months, and it is called The Carnivore Code, I talk about the user manual or our book of life. And I think that if we look back at where we've come from, how our natural evolution has shaped who we are as beings. And I think most people, it makes sense intuitively to think, What my ancestors were doing is probably what I should be doing. Natural selection, the process of genomic shift happens gradually when there are certain selective pressures that push the human race or any species in a a strong direction. But really, for the majority of our evolution as humans and pre-human primates, which we can get into, we have been hunting animals. And there's lots of good evidence for this from the anthropologic record, from the historical record, and looking at currently living indigenous peoples that are probably mirroring what we did in our past more than our contemporary sort of mainstream Western society. It's only within the last ten to 12,000 years that humans have been farming. And Jared Diamond calls this the cult of the seed or the worst mistake in human history so it's a blink of an eye evolutionarily without any clear selective pressure to allow our genome and our physiology to adjust to a farming based lifestyle that is rich in plant foods rather than animal foods and so we are at this kind of discordant crossroads in evolution as humans only a, a few you know 100 generations from the beginning of agriculture without any real selective pressures to let us adapt. And what we've seen is this very stark change in the way that we were eating, like I said, from an emphasis on hunting and eating animals to an emphasis on consuming foods that we were growing in the ground. And that, I think, is the biggest discordance in our ancestral history and our environment now, and I think that that is what is leading to the majority of disease that we have. Now, if humans survive, (laughs) another million years on the face of this planet, which many people don't think we will, perhaps we could adapt, right? Mm -hmm. Perhaps those in our population that are more adapted to eating plants or foods that were grown in farms would become selected for. But right now, that doesn't seem to be happening and there's a real mismatch and that is causing disease. So if we look at where humans came from, we came from primates we came from chimpanzee type relatives about 5 million years ago in the east african rift valley and the first human like people are called australopithecus and there's a famous skeleton of a an ancestor called lucy which mm-hmm. is 3.5 million years old it looks like we were in the trees And then some of our ancestors came out of the trees probably because of a shift, a tectonic shift, and we were suddenly in the savannah and in the plains and exposed from predators and we had to shift what we were eating. And so the first Australopithecine type humans or pre-humans had a rib cage and a stomach that looks a little bit between a human and an ape. And then... We gradually began to walk more upright over the next million, million and a half years. Our rib cage straightened rather than kind of protruding out to a protuberant belly. And we began to look like more of what we think of today as a human type animal or a human type form. Mm -hmm. And most people agree that this was because we began eating more and more animals. Chimps, apes, They eat the majority of their food from plants, and they have a big stomach and a big gut to ferment that, and they're adapted to that. But our ancestors appear to have come out of the trees and begun doing something amazing, which was scavenging dead animals and getting the fat from those animals. And then eventually, around two and a half to three million years ago, it looks like we started hunting. And that was really the catalyst for the Evolution that we've seen for humans now. And then we see Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis, and then Homo sapiens within the last 500,000 years. But the argument that I make in the beginning of the book, talking about our evolution, is that the spark, the thing that really made us into humans, was hunting animals and having access to animal meat, animal organs, and animal fat. That was something that our ancestors had never done before. And then our brains were growing at the same time. We became smarter. We started throwing rocks. We could make stone tools. We could hunt in groups. And all of those adaptations allowed us to get animal foods. And those animal foods then shaped us as humans. They allowed our brains to grow. So it's this kind of circle, this cycle. We are smarter. We can hunt more animals. The animals give us more calories. We have more EPA and DHA for brain development. There's a lot of theories around this. We have more micronutrients that are animal-based. Our rib cage starts to flatten out because we're eating more highly digestible food rather than plant food. And we grow a bigger brain. There's like this trade-off between gut and brain where our gut shrinks, our brain grows, and the only way that can happen is because we were getting higher quality food and that was animal food. And so from 2.5 million years to basically about 20,000 years ago, our brains exploded, not literally, but they (laughs) exploded in size, tripled in size over two and a half million years. Whereas for the previous 30, 40, 50 million years, they had been stagnant in size in our primate ancestors. So anyway, that's kind of where we've come from, but it was about this consumption of animals that made us human.
0: What I'm picking up there is you're talking about since the agricultural age or the seed age, as you said, that's only been the last 10,000, 20,000 years, whereas we've had millions of years to adapt to this new way of eating, which was to hunt and gather, um, right. mainly hunting. But that was happening over millions of years. So it was a gradual evolutionary process. Yeah. So talk to me about that, and I find it fascinating. I'd love to understand where fire came into this and cooking came into this as well, because I've got a few questions about raw and cooked moving forward. Because that seems yeah. to be one of the big questions that people have: is should we be eating raw meat, should we be eating cooked meat? How does that work? But I'd love that you know millions of years, because even today people go, oh, we should be able to have dairy because we've been having it for the last five thousand years or ten thousand years, and it's like, well, that seems like a long time. But if you really think about it. No. It is just that blink of an eye.
1: There are so many questions here. Science is fascinating. We don't fully understand how evolution works, you know? Yeah. We're all sort of thinking in this Darwinian evolution, and perhaps it's more complex than that. But there's also not a lot of selective pressure to allow people to select for people who can tolerate gluten or dairy or plant foods. We've come to a point in human evolution, and this perhaps was the greatest sort of danger of agrarianism, pastoralism, the cult of the seed, is that in order for a gene to be passed on to the next generation, the organism just has to live long enough to reproduce. And humans are a pretty unique species. I guess a lot of species have kind of become this way. Really, nature has made us very insulated against decline for the first 25 years. People realize this, right? Like Mm -hmm. you can basically grow up eating Pop-Tarts and McDonald's. If you get, certainly childhood malnutrition exists, but kids are resilient in the sense that they can grow up eating junk food and still reproduce. And so what's just happened there is there's no selective pressure, right? Most of our life is after our reproduction. It's a very uncommon sort of imbalance between the amount of time that we're maturing and reproducing versus the amount of time afterward. And so, there's not a lot of selective pressure right now that would that would increase the amount of people in the population that can tolerate dairy or that can tolerate gluten, and so or, or the plant foods. And so, people say, "Oh, we should be adapted." It's like, "Yeah, I don't think selective pressures and natural selection is really acting on us in this way." But when we were hunting and gathering, there was a much stronger influence of sort of evolution and, and these natural selective pressures because of just the way we were living as a hunter-gatherer. Just, we didn't have this insured availability of all these plant calories that could get us to reproduce, but then we would become very quickly decrepit, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of a mismatch there. In terms of cooking of food, there are some anthropologists, I believe his name is Richard Wrangell, has wrote a book called Is it Catching Fire mm-hmm. that talked about the arrival of fire and the use of fire to make food more digestible and get more calories out of it. And I think it's an interesting idea, but the best anthropologic evidence I've seen is that fire didn't show up until 1.5 million years ago or even 500,000 years ago. So there's a very clear, significantly exponential increase in the brain size of humans that predates that by over a million years. And so for over a million years, our brains were increasing in size before there's any evidence of humans using fire to cook or do anything. And the other thing about fire, and you probably know this, is that when you cook meat, it doesn't really make the meat more digestible. It makes vegetables less toxic, and it makes some tuberous vegetables more calorically available. But the cooking of meat doesn't really make meat more digestible or more nutritious. It makes plant foods more palatable in some ways, but it's hard to know what our ancestors were doing with meat, how much they were cooking or eating raw. In terms of today's landscape, I think that there's so much concern about food safety that as a physician, I always hesitate to recommend eating raw meat, though there are many delicacy dishes: beef tartare, carpaccio. Stop it! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know sashimi, sashimi wagyu that are raw that are completely fine for humans to eat if it's good quality meat. So humans don't die. I mean, I've eaten a lot of raw meat in my life, and it's delicious. And so I think that we can eat raw meat if the quality of the meat is good and we're not concerned about food safety. We can eat raw meat, or we can cook it if we'd like. That has the potential to go down a whole another rabbit hole about potential toxins formed in the cooking of foods Mm. and how we should cook meat, but I don't know if we want to go in that direction. But I think that humans have been using fire and I don't think fire can be credited with the increase in brain size. I think Mm -hmm. it was the hunting
0: of animals. So it comes down to a choice then. I mean, talking about raw food, a few years ago, I did a tour around Australia called the Paleo Way Tour, where I taught people how to eat ancestral diet. And one of the things that I'd love to do was bring out a bone marrow, and I'd scoop the bone marrow raw out of the bone and eat it. Oh yeah, it's great. Everyone'd be like, "Ooh, what are you doing?" I like, "It's better cooked, honestly. Roasted bone marrow is probably one of my favourite things, but actually eating it raw, it's not too bad either." And I guess what I wanted to portray up on stage was. It's just a perception. Exactly. If you were starving and that bone was there and there was nothing else and you couldn't light a fire, you would eat it and there was nothing wrong with that. And no doubt our ancestors did exactly that and it sustained them and and kept them alive. And I do want to touch on the ways of cooking because I think it is important. I mean, I'm a chef. I've released 20 cookbooks. A lot of the Recipes that I've got in there are for roasts. They're for steaks that have been grilled. We've also got slow cooked dishes such as braises, curries, soups. We've got salads in there. I've eaten raw meat in every single country that I've visited. Re- recently, I was in Spain and Portugal, actually, it was, and I was eating raw pork tartar, you know, from these beautiful, mm. beautiful black pigs called Berico pigs. Right, They walk or run 10 to 15 kilometers per day, and they have a natural diet, and they're outside. And it was a specialty. They said, this is one of our greatest dishes. It's pork tartar, And it was absolutely delicious. But I trusted their handling of that pig. And I've had raw chicken before. I've had raw beef liver before. And I absolutely love it. But you do have to trust it. And I would just love to touch on this Because I have heard you talk about this before that certain cooking methods may not be the best way forward when it comes to health. And I've asked the same question to Dr. Sean Baker about the AGEs when cooking steak, because I know he cooks a lot of steak. And he said it's you don't really need to worry about it. But I've heard you say, actually, I think we should take some consideration in how we actually cook our meat and not to burn it and not to heat it too high. So can you take us through that and your current best cooking methods that you would employ?
1: Yeah. And I think this is nuanced. The the research is not fully done here, but when you put a steak on a grill or on a pan, like a cast iron pan, you're Mm -hmm. making what are called heterocyclic amines. When you are exposing a steak or meat to smoke, you are putting polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons into the meat So those are the first two products of cooking, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines. And I think that there is enough evidence to suggest that in high doses, those things can be dangerous for humans. And so I have recommended caution when considering the way we consume meat that we probably don't want to eat all of our meat smoked and grilled and seared. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's fine every once in a while. And our body certainly possesses a detoxification system to get rid of those compounds. But this is actually quite an interesting point. The way that those compounds look to our liver is a lot like sulforaphane looks to our liver. And everyone says, oh, sulforaphane is a xenohormetic. You know, I bumped into David Sinclair last mm-hmm. week. I'm hoping to have him on my podcast, which is Fundamental Health, mm-hmm. soon. And so, we can discuss our differing opinions about xenohormetics. But everyone says, sulforaphane is good for you. It's a hormetic. Well, you know, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines do the same thing in the liver that sulforaphane does, right? Mm -hmm. They act as pro-oxidants and they trigger the NRF2 system and your body makes a little more glutathione. My problem with all of these molecules is that they're going to cause some oxidative stress. In addition to that. And so your body can adjust, but we can certainly overwhelm our body's capacity to detoxify
0: these things. Sulforaphane? So is that how yeah. you pronounce it? Because that's, yeah. I've just taught my girls and uh, my daughters how to make broccoli seed sprouts. You know, we've got that in the, in the thing, which yeah. is uh, an NRF2. <laughs> yeah. That so am I doing the right thing? Should we be eating these sprouts? Is it no. not the right thing? <laughs> okay, there we go. No. You should definitely not be eating
1: those breasts. Would your ancestors have ever done that? No, that doesn't make any sense. And we can go into sulforaphane and plant toxins, but that's a nuanced discussion about xenohormetics and plant toxins. But with regard to polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines, they do trigger the antioxidant response system in the body and there is a little bit of stress that they cause. And so, What I have recommended is, you know, we shouldn't be eating all of our meats that way, and we shouldn't be grilling every single meat, and we shouldn't be smoking all of our meats, and we should be aware of our intake of these compounds. We shouldn't be overcooking our meats. And that's why I think things like sous vide, if you can find the proper bags that don't have lots of, you know, xenoestrogens in them, Mm -hmm. or water cooking is probably the safest way to do it. Now, people may not want to do, you know, a slow cooked braised lamb shank every day. They may sometimes want to eat a seared steak, but I don't think we should eat every steak like that and we shouldn't oversmoke it. Now, AGEs are advanced glycation end products. And those are different than heterocyclic amines, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. And AGEs can be formed when you cook anything. That can be formed when you cook carbohydrates, when you cook anything, it'll make AGEs. And if you look at levels of AGEs in foods, some of the highest AGEs are in animal foods, but they're really only highest in the animal foods that are fried and kind of cooked in fat. So bacon has a lot of advanced glycation end products. It really Mm -hmm. does. Now, the good news is that meat also has carnitine and carnitine helps our body deal with advanced glycation end products. You cannot get carnitine from plants. We can make a small amount of it, but it's likely not even close to enough to be optimal. So we need carnitine in meat. And the carnitine in meat might help us deal with heterocyclic amines, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, and AGEs. But when I'm talking to clients and in my book, what I talk about is, hey, we probably should also not be eating the animal foods that are significantly higher in AGEs every day as a staple. And the two biggest ones would be butter and bacon. You know, this gets into how you cook your meat. Sometimes people will say, oh, I'm going to make a steak and I'm going to fry it in tallow. And I'm saying, you know, that's going to make a lot of AGEs on the surface of the meat. It's going to taste good. Some people will even say, hey, I'm going to cook my steak in bacon fat. I'm like, that's great on your anniversary or your birthday. And it's all about goals, right? If your goal is optimal health, why not just cook it on a cast iron pan or sous vide it and sear it lightly? So there's all these ways that we can think, you know, if we're deep frying a steak, that could create more problems for humans. So mm-hmm. there's nuance there. And I don't want to suggest that I'm saying don't ever eat bacon because it's delicious, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying don't ever put a steak on the grill because that's worth life, right? That's delicious too. But there are ways to mitigate it and be a little careful about what we do so that we don't
0: overconsume it. And again, it's just a balance. Like, mm-hmm. What is our goal? So what we're talking about here is balance. So as we suggested, some sort of braising, some sort of salad, some sort of raw, some sort of cooked, all of these different ways that we can vary up our diet. Now in saying that, it's interesting because why should meat and fat from that animal be our primary source of nutrition? And especially in those detail, can you talk us through that? Because Often I see people that are doing carnivore and they're eating the bacon, they're eating the steaks that are grilled all the time. And me being a chef, again, I love to bring it back to my training. One of the things we learned to do was appreciate nose to tail. We learned how to butcher whole animals and we learned how to cook the liver, the head, the marrow, the tail, the cheek, the blood. And these are the types of foods that not only being a chef that I gravitate towards, but from a nutritional perspective, I love to include these in my diet. And it's not all I eat. You know, Again, it's nose to tail. Here's the question. Some people I've spoken to say eating the organ meats isn't necessary. Whereas I think, well, wouldn't if our ancestors always have eaten that and isn't that the most prized nutrient that's in the animal? What's your perspective? Absolutely. I agree with
1: you completely, Pete. I did a podcast with Chris Masterjohn on my podcast a few weeks ago. And I wanted to have Chris on because he's a researcher in the nutritional space. And we had a pretty strict conversation about nutrient deficiencies on a meat-only carnivore diet. Mm -hmm. From the beginning of my interest in the carnivore diet, I've always thought that nose to tail was the way to go. It just makes sense. Like you suggest, if we're thinking about it from an ancestral lens, we would have always eaten the whole animal. Countless indigenous people's treasure, the kidney, the liver, the heart, the gallbladder, all of it. It's all treasure. The testicles, they all have special roles, right? No indigenous tribe is going to waste the brain. And like you said earlier, some people may say, Ooh, I don't want to eat that. And that's just a conditioning thing. It's not a nutritional thing because if you go to other countries, they have kind of kept their traditional styles maybe a bit more than we have in the West where we're only used to eating ribeye steaks and hot dogs now. But if you look at the nutritional content of animal foods, it's quite fascinating. There is a subset of nutrients that are rich in muscle meat and a quite complementary set of nutrients that are rich in organ meats. Specifically liver and kidney are the two that I think of most. So this is my problem when carnivore advocates or other people suggest you can just eat meat is, you know, based on everything we know about nutrition and our Our knowledge is still evolving, so I'm open to the fact that this could be an exception, but I doubt it. Based on everything we've learned about nutrition over the last 100, 200 years, there are tons of things that are not present in muscle meat that are robustly present in organs right? You can think of folate, you can think of biotin, you can think of riboflavin, you can think of all kinds of things like that, like choline. It's just very complimentary. And if you only eat the muscle meat, you're just missing out on this other rich source of nutrients and calories. And so I think that from this comes a very sort of elegant premise. It circles back to what you said in the beginning. And this is something that I've said for a long time now, in podcasts and in my media, that this is so beautiful. If you eat animals nose to tail, there is nothing that you will be deficient in. Eating animals nose to tail is like the ultimate human multivitamin. You can get everything that you need to function optimally as a human from a nutritional perspective. All of the vitamins, all the minerals, everything you need is in an animal when you eat it nose to tail. That statement alone is just such a fascinating thing to kind of chew on and think, what about this, what about that? And I talk about that with Chris on the podcast, and we can talk about questions if you have them about that. But it's a really interesting kind of singularity there. Like you can get everything you need in an animal, and, but you have to
0: eat an also tail. I love cookbooks, and I really love cookbooks from different parts of the world. You know, there's no point in me buying a cookbook from Australian chefs and not having to go with them. But... You know, if you look in my library, I've got books from Turkey, from Iran, from Vietnam, from Russia, from all of these different parts of the world because I want to educate myself on traditional cultural food. And one thing in common is they have nose-to-tail recipes through every single culture. And some of them, like the Iranian sheep head stew, for instance, you know, people look at that and we've just replicated our version for an upcoming cook that I'm doing, you know, and they're like, why would you put that in there? I'm like, well, because obviously I believe nose to tail needs to be more promoted. But you look at something like a sheep's head stew, it's got brains in there, it's got the the cheeks in there, it's got even the teeth in there, and it's also got the eyes and it's got all of the ears and all of this stuff that's just going to slowly cook into that delicious stew and broth. And that can only be a good thing.
1: Absolutely a good thing. There's no question that it's a good thing. From a nutritional diversity, from a nutritional comprehensive, from a comprehensive nutritional standpoint, we need to get all these little pieces. And I love that you alluded to this at the beginning of the podcast. Like there are a lot of vitamins and minerals, but our acquisition of them does not have to be complicated. You know, if you try and eat plant-based, it's extremely complex to get everything you need. And you have to take this supplement and that supplement. You need zinc and you need selenium, and you need this and you need that. You need DHA and you need B12. If you eat animals nose to tail, you don't need anything Mm. because it's all in there. But it's not just in the muscle meat. It's not just the rump or the tenderloin. It's the liver and the kidney and the heart and the spleen and the brain and the eyes. And And the blood. (laughs) Yeah, and the blood. And people don't need to eat all of that. But. That's where nutritional science has really kind of helped us make a nose to tail carnivore diet contemporary. And we have the science to say, hey, as far as we know, you can pretty much get everything you need just by eating the meat and a few organs. It's obviously better to eat more of the animal. And for a lot of people that can't eat the organ meats, there's now more and more supplements like This company in the States, Ancestral Supplements, has these desiccated organ pills, which I think serve a very good Mm. role as an adjunct for people that need to get those things and aren't used to Iranian sheep's heads too. (laughs) Although
0: you and I, I want to be invited to that dinner because I want to eat that for sure. Yeah, we've got our own supplements. Actually, the first supplements we released in Australia is beef liver. We've got beef heart about to, to launch and then we've got uh, thymus and we've got bone marrow and we've got brains and we've got all these things coming. And, yep. you know, every morning the kids and we do, even if we're eating liver, we, we, we start off the day with some liver and I've also got oyster capsules that have, a, you know, ground up oysters in it because again, yep. that, that's a beautiful food. And just traveling through Spain and Portugal with my wife recently, whole sardines, you eat the whole thing, eyes, backbone, every part of that animal goes into your stomach and I absolutely love it. Now here's the question that everybody's gonna be wanting to know. So I had a microbiome expert on the podcast recently and I asked him the same question. Let's talk about our microbiome. I flat out asked, I said, what diet is best for us, for our microbiome and for our probiotics and all this? And he said, an omnivorous diet, plant-based foods and animal fats and proteins. That is, from their research, looking at all the different hunter-gatherer tribes and people around the world, the ones with the most diversity, and this is not what I'm saying, I'm paraphrasing here, had the most amount of diverse foods going into their system, obviously organic and well-sourced. So how does our microbiome adjust or work best if we're eating a nose to tail carnivore diet. And the next question on top of that is probably fiber. How does that work? So microbiome, fiber, probiotics, do we still need a supplement or is it all, all in the animals?
1: Yeah, this is a fascinating question. The microbiome conversation is a very important one. And it's one that I've started to talk about more and more on my podcast as well. The research that that person was referring to is done on currently living hunter-gatherers. Currently living hunter-gatherers are not able to eat the way that we would have because their lands have been taken away from them and they can no longer kill elephants in Africa, whether we're talking about Hadza or Ikung. There really are most of the hunter-gatherers living on the earth right now are, you know, about 50-50 plant and animal foods because that's what they have to do to survive. Mm -hmm. But his suggestion that the highest diversity is found in the people that are eating more plant foods is not something that I have seen borne out in the literature. I would disagree with that pretty strongly on a couple of points here. Diversity score, which is known as alpha diversity, is a very poor measure of gut health. All of the conversations of the microbiome are sort of couched in this, fallacy that we actually know what a healthy gut microbiome is because no one does. And we there are some organisms we can look at and say, you know what? Having a bunch of gram-negative aerobic organisms, proteobacteria, this is probably bad. You don't want C. diff in your gut. You don't want a whole bunch of proteobacteria. You don't want Klebsiella. That's fine. But beyond that, we are in the infancy of the microbiome and so many of these researchers are making claims that are too projective, right? I do not think that we have the science to support that and clinically, we see the reverse. I can't even tell you how many people have had cases of GI issues completely resolved with the total elimination of plant fiber. And I'll talk about fiber in a moment as well. Mm -hmm. But clinically, how can a diet, like a carnivore diet, That has helped so many people improve inflammatory bowel diseases, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, or irritable bowel syndrome, small intestinal bowel overgrowth, be bad for the gut. Like, why is it bad for the gut when somebody's autoimmune disease just got better, right? What these researchers are suggesting is, oh, if you do these changes, if you take away plant fiber, changes may happen in your gut flora that may mimic people with inflammatory bowel disease. But I have never heard of a case of anyone acquiring Crohn's or ulcerative colitis on a carnivore diet. And believe me, we have tens of thousands of people doing this now, right? So we have lots of experiments, and it's not like 30% of the people are just getting inflammatory bowel disease. It's the complete opposite that people with inflammatory bowel disease, people with gas, bloating, constipation, irritable bowel symptoms are resolving with the removal of plant fiber. So at a clinical level, we do not see gut issues occurring. At a microbiological level, most of what these researchers are saying is pure speculation. They cannot know this much lacto, this much bifido, or any of these things. People would generally say that bifidobacterium is a good bacteria to have in your gut. But if you look at the HODs of hunter-gatherers, they don't really have any bifidobacteria. So it's all just this conjecture, right? My favorite statement about the microbiome is that the microbiome that you have when you are healthy is a healthy microbiome. There is no reason to go looking at your gut and asking questions about your bacteroidetes to permicutes ratio, how much fecal bacterium how much rosberia, how much of any species are in your gut if you have regularity in your bowel movements, you don't have gas or bloating, and you don't have any GI symptoms and you're otherwise healthy. That's clinical evidence you have a healthy gut, right? We don't really need to look. But when we do look, Pete, in carnivores, carnivores have very high diversity scores. These are humans eating a carnivore diet because testing like u longevity, we can do these diversity scores. And I would challenge any plant-based eater to look at my diversity versus theirs Fiber, if you look at the research, there is no evidence that plant fiber increases alpha diversity. You can give people fiber supplements, you can look at epidemiologic studies or observational studies in terms of fiber consumption, no correlation with changes in alpha diversity. The last thing here is that diversity is a poor measure of gut health because you can have a diverse gut that has a lot of bad guys in it, right? So, Mm-hmm. That's the other thing is that diversity is not always gut health in the first place. So the whole discussion is just really on shaky ground and it's very inaccurate. And when people claim omnivores, plant fiber are necessary for a healthy gut, I just, it kind of makes my ears bleed a little bit. I think that's just not true. The other criticism of the gut on a zero plant fiber diet is butyrate and short-chain fatty acids. And again, this is just an oversight on the part of the critics. When we eat animal fat and protein, we can make short-chain fatty acids. We can make isobutyrate, propionate, valerate, acetate. There are plenty of short-chain fatty acids we can make from animal foods that can serve as fuel for the colonic epithelial cells. So what does that mean? (laughs) Okay. So people will say, oh, you need to eat lots of plant fiber because then the gut microbes will make short-chain fatty acids. In your colon, which is the end of your gut, the epithelial cells run on short-chain fatty acids for fuel. That's one of their primary fuel sources. So people say, oh, if you're not making enough butyrate in your gut, it's not going to be healthy. But the thing is that what people overlook is that there are many short-chain fatty acids beyond butyrate, and the colonic epithelial cells can use any of them for fuel they're interchangeable perhaps butyrate is one of the more preferred fuels but you can make short chain fatty acids from animal foods there's this great paper looking at cheetahs and they looked at the short chain fatty acids that were made when cheetahs ate animal foods and they saw that when cheetahs ate collagenous tissue they mm-hmm. could make lots of butyrate like short chain fatty acids so We might even think about connective tissue from animals. These are tendons, ligaments, things like this that a lot of people will cut off their steak but needs to be in there. Of course, if we're eating nose to tail, tendinous collagenous foods can also be used to make short-chain fatty acids in our gut. So the short-chain fatty acid argument does not hold any
0: water whatsoever. And obviously, we can get that when we're making a bone broth by putting in all of those bits and pieces.
1: Yep, or you could just eat a steak like a ribeye that has connected tissue on it, and mm-hmm. eat that. You know, the New York has the tendon on the back. Yep. If you eat the tendon, I mean, you hand that New York steak to a cheetah, the cheetah is not going to eat just the muscle meat and leave the tendon. You know, mm-hmm. come on, this is what we do as humans: is we just want a tenderloin, we just want you know filet mignon, and it's just. I mean, there's still some connective tissue in there. There always is, but it's just a piece of muscle meat. Whereas mm-hmm. some of the other cuts of steak have connective tissue and chewy bits, and that's what we would have always eaten and that's an incredibly important part of our nutrition from that perspective.
0: I'd love to ask you, because a lot of people, this might be the first time they've heard of this, that plants can be problematic for our bodies and that we just shouldn't be eating them in the quantities that we're having. And some people, not eat them at all because they actually cause us issues. So, for anybody that's never heard of this concept that plants can harm us when we eat them, can you talk us through that and what those mechanisms are and just give us some examples? Because we talk about nightshades being problematic for autoimmune sufferers, the tomatoes, the capsicums, the potatoes, these or the peppers, these types of things. But I know. Oxalates are an issue, spinach is an issue, all of these different things can cause us issues. So explain why it can be problematic or it is problematic for human beings to ingest plant material.
1: Yeah, I think that as sentient, mobile humans, we don't really understand what it's like to be a plant. (laughs) So
0: you and I,
1: you and I I are going to go to the beach. We're going to surf. But after we surf, I'm going to bury you in the sand up to your neck, but I'm going to bury you really tight, or I'm going to bury the listener of this podcast really tightly in the sand. So only your head is sticking up. You can't move. You are rooted in the ground. And then just to be a good friend, I'm going to paint your face like a soccer ball. And then what do you know? a party of 26-year-olds just waltz onto the beach and they are looking for something to play with. And they see your head and it's painted like a soccer ball. What do you think's going to happen? They're going to come over and kick you in the face, man. And this is the way a plant feels. It feels very vulnerable. A plant is rooted in the ground. Plants are really not mobile. They can't run away from insects, from fungus, from herbivorous animals that want to eat them. And plants and animals have been co-evolving for 400 million years. And the only reason that plants are still around is because they have slowly, steadily been in a chemical arms race with the animals, insects, fungus that prey on them. And that chemical arms race on the side of the plants has mean that they have developed myriad toxins. So, so many of these chemicals that we think of in plants as beneficial, perfect example is sulforaphane that you mentioned earlier. This is a plant defense chemical. This is a phytoalexin. It exists in plants to ward off predation by insects and herbivores. In the case of sulforaphane, that molecule does not exist until its precursor molecule, which is called glucoraphanin, combines with an enzyme called myrosinase when the plant is chewed. If sulforaphane existed in a plant, it would damage the plant because it has so much ability to be a pro-oxidant molecule. So the plant uses sulforaphane as a booby trap. It says, you're going to chew me, I'm going to make sulforaphane, and this is going to be bad for you as an animal, as an insect that's chewing on me, and discourages animals from eating them, which is why you and your daughters should throw out broccoli sprouts, my friend, because those (laughs) broccoli sprouts do not contain sulforaphane until you chew them. But they don't want to get eaten because the plants want to live. And a broccoli sprout is very susceptible to predation. If any part of that broccoli spout gets munched on, that plant is dead. So if you look at it, these alkaloid chemicals or these chemicals like sulforaphane are often highest in the seeds, in the roots, and in the sprouts of plants because those are the most vulnerable parts of the plants that they don't want animals to eat. And these are defense chemicals because plants need them there. Now, herbivores and plants have co-evolved These animals have kind of figured out, some of them have evolved ways to detoxify these chemicals. They've figured out that they can't eat this much of a certain plant or they will get sick. But some herbivores are ruminants. They have five stomachs. They can digest the proteins better, detoxify them. Moose have a compound in their saliva that degrades tannins in leaves. Tannins are a type of polyphenol that inhibit digestive enzymes but moose have developed this enzyme that degrades those. And so animals that have consistently been seeking out plants have developed ways to deal with this. But over the last 5 million years, we have been eating animals Mm -hmm. and we really are not good at detoxifying plant toxins. Some people may do a little better job of it than other people, but by and large, these are negative for us. In fact, I would say invariably these are negative for us. And It's just a matter of what we can tolerate. Some people can tolerate more than others, but for all of us, I believe these plant toxins represent a negative. So the question around eating plants becomes, why would you eat a plant? Would you eat a plant for nutrients? Well, we kind of talked about that earlier. There's nothing in plants that you can't get in animals in a more bioavailable form. So there's no nutrients that are unique to plants that you can't get in animals. And we can talk about vitamin C if you want. And then people would say, oh, what about the polyphenols? And what I'm saying is that polyphenols are toxins. These are phytoalexins, and I talk about this in the book in great detail, but things like resveratrol, sephoraphane. Sephoraphane is actually not a polyphenolic compound. It's an isothiocyanate, but these are plant defense mechanisms. These are not good for humans. They're just not. If you look at the science, there is no evidence that they represent any sort of long-term benefit for humans, and that's clearly documented in the science, though the supplement companies will not tell you that. So the question is, why would you eat plants? And you might eat plants. Really, what I think the most valid answer is, is twofold. Evolutionarily, humans would have eaten plants during times of starvation. You and I are in a tribe. We go out to hunt. We didn't get a woolly mammoth. Okay, this person in the tribe picked some nuts. You know, somebody dug up some tubers. Okay, we're going to eat that so we get calories. Plants are survival foods. They are fallback foods. If we kill a woolly mammoth, man, you and I are gonna feast on that thing and our tribe is for weeks and we're not gonna go seek out plants. Humans are omnivores, but we're also kind of carnivores, right? Like we can just eat animals. We don't need plants at all. But we're so resilient because we can eat both, but the plants are the fallback food. And sadly, within our culture today, the fallback food has become the main food that we are eating as humans. Mm -hmm. And people have celebrated it. There's movies about it plant-based. And it's like, no, that's survival food. And if you make that the majority of your diet, you will suffer. You may not die tomorrow, but you will suffer ill health and you will suffer suboptimal health for your entire life. Now, I'm not saying everybody needs to cut out every single plant. I think the second reason to eat plants is entertainment, variety, color. You're a chef, you get this, right? Mm -hmm. But we need to realize that that's why we're doing it. And in people that are very sick or want to perform their best, the exclusion of all plants is a very useful tool to see if that improves autoimmune disease, inflammation, leaky gut, et cetera. And more often than not, it does.
0: Okay. Mind blown, you know, sprouting jars, possibly going out <laughs> to for something else. But it's interesting over the last couple of years, I've been including more and more animal protein and fat into my diet. And it's nearly like I'm just adding one vegetable to the meals now or just adding a little bit of kraut to the side or a little bit of sprouts. It seems like my meat to vegetable plant material ratio has, has flipped over the last few years and to the point where it's nearly carnivorous in completion. But I do have a question because I've just spent the last year filming a documentary on cannabis. Now, cannabis is a plant and it seems to be a plant that is helping a lot of people. Now, I also know of turmeric is considered as one of these wonderful medicinal spices. We also have garlic or ginger or you name it, parsley and rosemary growing in the garden as well. So how do these quote unquote medicinal spices and herbs that come from plants, how does that play out in a carnivorous diet from your perspective? Because if you look at I guess, traditional Chinese medicine, they were always using some sort of mushroom or spice or herb to make these tinctures and concoctions. And I've met so many kids that use cannabis for their epilepsy or brain cancer people that are using cannabis as an adjunct to their therapy. So how does that work? Because I'm trying to wrap my head around this as a curious member and, and trying to understand how these herbs and spices and plants may benefit us.
1: I think there's a clear difference between using plants as medicine and using plants as food. Mm-hmm. I would not deny that plant molecules can have medicinal value and many of the drugs we use today are from plants. Digitalis, you know, is from a plant. There are many chemotherapy drugs that are derived from plants. I think that plants can have medicinal value in certain situations when things go out of balance. We also have to take a step back and think about the way in which we are using molecules as a Western society. It is the addition of a molecule, often whether it's a pharmaceutical or a plant molecule, does not treat the underlying cause. But it can be a useful adjunct if we cannot treat or reverse the underlying cause in the case of a terminal brain cancer, or if someone is unwilling to treat the underlying cause. But we have to remember that what we are doing with plant medicine is the same as what we are doing with pharmaceutical medicine that is synthesized in the lab or from a bacterial genome in mainstream medicine, and that is adding a molecule to treat a symptom. And that is a valid way to do things, but we should not be confused and think that somehow plant molecules are better or different than synthetic pharmaceutical molecules because they're the same. They're all kind of pulled out of a tree or a Leaf or something. And, you know, in the case of cannabis, we're talking about cannabidiol or THC or other cannabinoids, which can have effects on the brain and can have effects on the appetite. And I think that that is basically we're using those molecules as pharmaceuticals. And that is fine, but it is not treating the underlying cause. And sometimes, like I suggested, we cannot or are not allowed to, or are unable to treat the underlying cause. But we should not be confused. We should not conflate that type of treatment with something that is aimed at understanding the underlying cause, which is usually inflammation and autoimmunity, right? These are very different things. But I do think plants have value as an adjunctive treatment. Aspirin is derived from willow bark, right? Uh, Acetosalicylic acid. But when we're using things from pharmaceuticals, people always are comfortable with the fact that they have side effects. When we're using plant molecules, people are much less aware of the fact that they have similar side effects. CBD has side effects. CBD has been shown to damage DNA and cause chromosomal breaks. Now, is it worth it? In some cases, it probably is because we don't have any other way to help ameliorate the patient's symptoms. But CBD is not a perfect molecule. Neither is curcumin. So you talked about turmeric and everybody says, oh, turmeric is great for inflammation. Well, true. The curcumin molecule may affect inflammatory pathways in the human body as an adjunct. It does not correct the root cause of that inflammation. And the curcumin molecule is very well studied and shown to have many damaging effects in the human body as well, which wouldn't be surprising if I were talking to you about naproxen or ibuprofen. People say, oh yeah, of course it has side effects. When we're talking about curcumin, People are like, what do you mean it has side effects? I thought it was just a magical root that was gonna cure all human ills. And it's not. It's the same thing as a pharmaceutical in a lab. It's the same thing as ibuprofen or naproxen. It has side effects. Now, are naproxen and ibuprofen useful? Absolutely. If you break your leg, Naproxen and ibuprofen may slow wound healing, but in the acute point when you're in the emergency room, they're going to make it so that you can actually not scream in pain, right? Mm -hmm. So, molecules have utility. They do not treat the underlying cause. And I think that plant molecules can be medicational, but there's a difference between using plants in that fashion and as food. The other example is, of course, psilocybin and some of the psychedelics, which are being used to great efficacy now to treat psychiatric illness. Again, They have side effects. They're going to have problems in the human body. Is the juice worth the squeeze? You know, Maybe that's not the best Mm. idiom, but is the risk worth the benefit? And in many cases, it may be, but we need to realize that with all these plant molecules, there's always a risk, and sometimes
0: it's not worth the benefit. Mm. I did want to uh, finish the conversation that probably leads into this as well, because whenever I share meat-based recipes or offal-based recipes, and I say, meat heals and meat is the way forward. People often say, well, what about the vegetarian religious sects that are in India or different parts of the world and the vegan parents that are choosing to feed their children a vegan or plant-based diet because they believe it's healthy. And then I think you touched on it before, You know, it's a survival mechanism, but for those very formative young years for a child, I, I, I cringe. Me too. Because it's like, what are you doing? Horrible idea. It's not safe. I mean, I was on a
1: podcast here in the US with Rich Roll. You know, we were kind of debating Rich Roll is a well-known vegan in the US. Mm -hmm. And somebody asked a question from the audience and said, what about vegan for kids? And he was like, I think it's fine. And I was like, it is not fine. That is a horrible idea. And, you know, somebody could perhaps levy the question back at me and say, what about the carnivore diet for kids? And I would say, you know what? This may seem like hypocrisy, but I think that if you feed your kid a lot of animal foods, they will be just fine. And that's just based on the scientific nutritional completeness of animal foods relative to plant foods. I think that anytime we talk about pregnancy, lactation, or kids, it all gets very heated and it's a powder keg and I would never tell parents how to feed their children. But I do believe that from a nutritional, evolutionarily ancestral perspective, feeding a child a diet that is mostly animal products will give them the nutrients they need to thrive. Whereas just based on nutritional science, a plant-based diet is going to be missing so many
0: things and could put the child at risk of so many deficiencies. Looking at the research through our ancestral heritage or history, can you tell us about what children were fed in these societies and what the pregnant women were fed or if we're going to conceive? It was nose to tail from my understanding, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean,
1: the anthropology that I've seen is that there were special foods that were fed to pregnant women and women who wanted to get pregnant. And they were some of the most nutritionally dense foods that we think of. Things like oysters and salmon roe and liver and kidney and the organs were saved for these women because they were so nutrient dense and iodine rich foods, you know? I think iodine, if we're not getting seafood, can be one of the things that people aren't getting enough of. And so it was often some iodine. I mean, it was basically like a prenatal vitamin, right? You give the woman some iodine, you give the woman some folate in liver, you give the woman some EPA and DHA and oysters, and you give them lots of omega-3 in salmon roe. and that is how you make a beautiful, healthy baby. And those are the things that are probably the most scarce in the natural world. So there are a few places where they concentrate And the ancestral peoples have always known this. Of course, they didn't know why. They didn't know about omega-3s. They just knew like, hey, if we give this woman salmon eggs, you know, they seem to conceive better or something.
0: Mm. A couple more questions, if I could keep you just for five more minutes, Paul. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And we should definitely talk about vitamin C because so many people have questions about that too. Let's cover vitamin C now then, if that's okay.
1: Yeah. So when I make the statement, which may sound bold, that you can get everything you need to function optimally as a human from animals, people often say, what about vitamin C? And this is the beginning of a fascinating rabbit hole. But the answer is yes, there is vitamin C in animal foods. And I believe there is a large amount of evidence that the amount of vitamin C in animal foods is more than enough for humans to function optimally. I did a post on my newsletter, or I talked about this in my newsletter, which people can sign up for if they go to my website, which is carnivoremd.com, about this this past week. But what we know about vitamin C, which is ascorbic acid, is that ascorbic acid is used to do a hydroxylation step, the addition of a hydroxyl group, to a collagen molecule. And the hydroxylation of a single strand of collagen allows the formation subsequently of a triple helix of three collagen strands. So scurvy is a deficiency of vitamin C when collagen doesn't form well. And people get the TKI, which are little small, little bleeding under the skin. They get bleeding gums. They lose their teeth because all of our collagenous tissues don't form well when we don't have enough vitamin C there have been some pretty intriguing experiments, which will never be repeated, done on conscientious objectors to World War II in 1935 to 1940. These conscientious objectors were given scurvy. It took three to four weeks, sometimes a month or two in some people, by complete deprivation of vitamin C-containing food, and they gave them back different doses of vitamin C to see what would cure scurvy. And even at the lowest dose, which was 10 milligrams of vitamin C per day, scurvy was completely cured. 10 milligrams of vitamin C a day. They didn't even do a lower dose. So it's possible that even less than 10 milligrams of vitamin C a day would be enough to reverse scurvy symptoms. And there was no difference in the clinical resolution of scurvy between 10, 70, or even higher doses of vitamin C in these people. So if we know that 10 milligrams of vitamin C is enough to cure scurvy, we can think, all right, you could get 10 milligrams of vitamin C in less than a pound of meat per day, right? It's quite easy to get enough vitamin C in animal foods to prevent scurvy. And there are really no documented cases of scurvy in the carnivore community in people who are eating fresh meat. Certainly, we know historically that when people are eating canned meat or salted meat or aged meat, the vitamin C is degraded and it's fresh meat that is an anti-scorbutic, which means fresh meat cures scurvy. So if we're eating fresh meat, we'll be fine from a scurvy perspective. Hmm. Beyond scurvy, some people, I disagree with Chris Masterjohn about this and I'm going to have another gentleman on my podcast soon and we'll probably debate this. The general thinking is that vitamin C acts as an antioxidant in the human body. But this actually has not been clearly demonstrated. (laughs) We know that vitamin C is involved in collagen synthesis, but our ancestors lost, or I should say discarded the ability to make vitamin C sixty six zero million years ago. That Hmm. is a lot of generations in which this mutation could have been culled out if it was not favorable. Mm -hmm. And An unfavorable mutation, a mutation that increased our requirements for an antioxidant, a mutation that created a lot more oxidative stress, like one would imagine if you can't get vitamin C in your environment and vitamin C is an antioxidant, that mutation would have been called out millions and millions of years ago. So when our ancestors came out of the trees 6 million years ago, 54 million years had gone by since that lineage of apes had discarded the ability to make vitamin C. And so clearly what had happened was that there was ample vitamin C in the environment and vitamin C was not serving a role for these individuals or these, these organisms, these animals, and they didn't need it or something else took over the roles that vitamin C had. And then you have to remember that once our ancestors came out of the trees, we started eating a lot of animals and that's really not debatable. And if that mutation had been... Unfavorable, or if we had not been able to adequately address oxidative stress, we would have died. You know, Mm -hmm. our Australopithecus would have gone extinct because where would we have gotten vitamin C when we were hunting animals in the amounts that so many of the pundits say we need for vitamin C? I mean, people will tell you you need a thousand or 500 milligrams of vitamin C a day. That's That's not even realistic in the natural world. Unless you're in the middle of an orange grove for, you know, the three days a year in that one part of the world where it grows, you're never going to get 500 milligrams of vitamin C a day. You're probably not even going to get 100 milligrams of vitamin C a day. Mm. And to be honest with you, the studies that use vitamin C repletion show no benefit. So from an oxidative stress perspective, when we give people supplemental vitamin C, we don't see any benefit. So it's far from proven that vitamin C is an antioxidant in our body, but the reverse may actually be true as well. Excess doses of vitamin C can be a pro-oxidant, like it's in a sort of complex chemistry that we don't have to go into redox chemistry, but high doses of vitamin C are a pro-oxidant, which is why vitamin C works for some people in cancer or sepsis. So when people have a very severe bacterial infection, the vitamin C IV can be helpful because it's like chemotherapy. They give people so much vitamin C in the IV that it causes bacteria to die because it's a pro-oxidant, right? High doses of vitamin C are a pro-oxidant, not an antioxidant. So what we find evolutionarily is this fascinating discordant story of vitamin C. And if you look at markers of oxidative stress in carnivores who are not supplementing vitamin C, they look fine. And you know the markers I would look at would be things like GGT, 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, lipid peroxides. You can look at glutathione levels. Carnivores, humans have adequate levels of these. They're just fine. Mm. So the vitamin C story is quite fascinating. And I think that will probably trigger a lot of people because it is held near and dear to the hearts of many, but there's really no evidence that we need that much. And it could potentially be dangerous.
0: I've always had this weird feeling or theory about big pelagic fish like tuna and these types of things. And we hear all these stories about them containing high levels of uh, heavy metals or mercury. And ancestrally speaking, to go catch a tuna, you got to go out in a boat somewhere generally. Was this ever really part of our diet? Do you eat fish like this? Or is it something that you have every once in a while as a treat? Because I just know so many people love eating tuna and these large fish, whereas more and more, I'm sort of steering towards these smaller fish that I guess we would catch closer to shore. Is there some sort of relevance to that?
1: Well, I think that in today's world, lamentably, we've poisoned the ocean and so many parts of our environment. And Large fish are full of mercury. That's a horrible idea. I would never, I mean, I tell my clients, do not eat tuna, do not eat king mackerel, like never, never eat swordfish, never eat shark. These are not human foods anymore. They contain so much organic mercury that it's absolutely going to be an oxidative stress. Mm. The smaller fish will bioaccumulate less, but you know what? The sad thing is that even wild salmon now has a moderate amount of mercury in it. And so, Unfortunately, I do eat seafood. Seafood is appears to be dirtier than land food. You know, we've polluted the earth. We just have, you know, I tend to eat shellfish and shellfish can be contaminated with cadmium for sure. But I eat oysters. I eat scallops. I eat mussels. I eat shrimp. I'll eat lobster and I don't end up eating a lot of fish anymore because even if somebody handed me a really fatty king salmon from Alaska, I would eat it with great glee. (laughs) Unless I'm going to get king salmon when it's wild for a few months out of the year, I just don't even eat fish anymore. That's just a personal choice. People could certainly eat
0: sardines or smaller fish, but the big fish is a horrible idea. Mm. And then leading into that as well, just going back to the land-based animals, I'd seem to be Leaning away from chicken and pork and more into the cow, the cattle and the lamb and also the wild game more and more so because it just seems to make a lot more sense that they're actually eating a pretty natural diet these days if we're getting grass-fed and, or pasture-raised and finished. And I just see, especially in Australia, chicken seems to be one of the most prominent and popular meats. But none of those chickens are eating the food that they normally would have in the wild.
1: No. I couldn't agree with you more, Pete. I totally agree with you. I was talking to one of my friends, Chris Bell, this morning about this and cows are not wild, but they're about as close as we can get, right? If they're grass fed and grass finished. Pigs are fed grains, they're fed soy, they're fed corn. If that's all the people have access to, fine. But if I'm going to eat pork, I want to eat wild pork or pork Mm. that's more intentionally raised. And the same with chickens. They're just fed corn, and they're fed soy, and they're fed GMO, glyphosate-containing grains. And if they're organic, they're fed organic grains. But their diet should be bugs, (laughs) and their diet should be worms and bugs. I mean, everyone has seen the cartoon of a chicken pulling a worm out of the ground. And if an animal isn't eating what it's designed to eat, and this is a metaphor that extends to humans as well, If an animal isn't eating what it's designed to eat, it's not going to be as healthy as possible and it's not
0: going to provide us with the best nourishment. Which then leads us to eggs. And eggs are a, a big part of, I guess, a paleo, primal, ancestral carnivore I see as well. But then if we're getting chicken eggs or duck eggs, same thing happens because none of them are wild. <laughs> so we're eating, again, no. probably an, an inferior food than once what we used to if we were hunting and gathering and collecting our own eggs.
1: Yes. And I think that's totally true. Now, I don't mean to suggest that the limit, the amount of foods people can eat. I think that if people are starting a carnivore diet or a paleolithic transition, those foods, pork, chicken, eggs can be a invaluable adjunct. But if we're now talking it like, if we're getting really granular and we're saying, Okay. Of animal foods, which are the best, then yes, I agree with you completely. Um, I think that sometimes people are like, what do you mean? I can't even eat eggs. I think it's fine. I would select the best eggs you can, but yes, I agree with you. Eggs are probably an inferior food than ruminant meat and organs and fat. I mean, that's probably with the earth that we live on today. Ruminant meat, fat, and organs are, in my strong opinion, the best foods that are on the planet both from a nutritional perspective,
0: from a toxin uh, absence perspective, et cetera. So salt, yes, no, would we have always used it? Why do we need it from a carnivore experience? This is such a hard question, (laughs) Pete.
1: Um, So here's what we know. When we salt deprive people, they become insulin resistant. All animals need salt. That's a blanket statement, but I mean, animals seek out salt. The question is how much? So in the experiments that have been done in humans, 500 milligrams of sodium, which is not salt because salt is sodium chloride. Mm -hmm. So 500 milligrams of sodium, which is equivalent to one gram of sodium chloride that amount of salt, anything less than that, causes insulin resistance. It causes increase in insulin. It causes increase in mineralocorticoid hormones like aldosterone. And the body kind of freaks out saying, I don't have enough of this mineral we need. We do need salt. If you look at animal meat, animal meat that we are eating today is not quite like what we would have eaten, right? It's probably not as fresh and there's, we're not eating any blood. There's a lot of salt in blood. There's about three grams of sodium in a liter of blood. Now, again, I'm talking sodium, not sodium chloride. Mm -hmm. But if you look at a pound of meat today, it only has about 400 milligrams of sodium in a pound of meat. And so if you eat a pound of meat, you can get pretty close to that 500 milligram mark that you need to not freak your body out. But somewhere in there, there's probably a sweet spot because... In the same studies, if we go above 5,000 milligrams of sodium per day, which would be the equivalent of 10,000 milligrams or 10 grams of salt, if we go above 5,000 milligrams of sodium, some things start happening and maybe that's too much salt. So I think humans have a a sweet spot for salt. Mm -hmm. And it's probably pretty wide. And I think it's probably somewhere between... I have to be very careful with my verbiage here. Mm -hmm. A sweet spot for sodium, probably somewhere between a 1,000 milligrams and... 3,000 milligrams or 4,000 milligrams of sodium per day. Now, you have to double those numbers when you're thinking about salt because there's a chloride anion in salt. Mm -hmm. So we're talking, if I'm saying 1,000 to 3 or 4,000 for sodium, I'm talking about 2 to 6 grams, maybe 2 to 8 grams of salt per day. Mm -hmm. You don't want to go a whole lot lower than 2, and you don't want to go probably a whole lot more than 8 And within that, there may be some individual variation. And I don't think anyone knows what that upper end might be. I think it would have been pretty rare that our ancestors would have gotten four grams of sodium per day. I think what's most reasonable is probably something about a gram of sodium per
0: day, which again is two grams of salt. (sighs) All right. Beverages. You know, it goes without saying that clean water obviously is the be-all and end-all. We are bombarded with all these choices, coffee, kombucha, kefirs, all of these different things out there, alcohol. Where do you sit on that beverage side of things? If you've got a client coming to you and they are a coffee drinker or whatever, what do, you, what do you say baseline and this is where we should be at?
1: It depends on their goals. I think the beverages are uniquely challenging. I don't think it'll come as a surprise to the listener that our ancestors didn't drink anything but water and maybe blood. (laughs) So, those are my preferred beverages for all of my clients. And certainly, I have invariably seen that people feel better, sleep better, have more consistent energy when they get rid of coffee. Coffee is one of the most controversial topics, but I think from what I see, there's a mountain of evidence that we should not be eating a drink that is brewed from burned beans, burned seeds. There are so many things wrong with coffee. There is acrylamide, there are mold toxins, there are pesticides on the coffee, and there are polyphenols from coffee, specifically caffic acid and chlorogenic acid, that have been found to damage DNA. So look, people love coffee, and I am not about decreasing people's quality of life, but if a client asks me, do you think, Paul, that coffee is hurting me, I will say yes. I don't think coffee is good for humans. I think some people can probably tolerate it. It brings people a lot of joy, and I do not want to be a joy killer. But if people ask me, should I eliminate coffee to see if it helps me, I will invariably say yes. I think most people should do a month or two without any coffee, especially if they have significant autoimmune or inflammatory disease or are worried about leaky gut or gut inflammation to see if coffee is potentially a trigger. I don't think it really adds anything to us. We know that caffeine is a toxin, right? Mm. We're trading it. People, There's a saying in psychiatry about alcohol, drinking alcohol is like borrowing tomorrow's happiness today. I kind of feel like it's that the way with caffeine and coffee. Mm. We're borrowing tomorrow's happiness. And you know what? Eventually, you're going to run out of tomorrows to borrow from. And your body is just going to get depleted. And you're just going to have put so much of this caffeine in your body that's affecting the way that your body does, energy metabolism and cyclic AMP, that you're going to mess things up. And so you can only borrow from tomorrow for so
0: long. I love it. And I guess bringing it back to the start, the human formula and keeping it simple. So many people do not know how many meals to eat in a day. Sometimes I eat one, sometimes we eat none, sometimes I eat three. It just depends on where I'm at, my workload. And I just eat and I feel like eating all, that's pretty much it. But for so many people, they actually have no idea what is right and what is wrong or they can't listen to their body. And obviously, through our ancestral heritage, we would have had times of famine and we would have gone long periods of time, no doubt, days or weeks without sometimes having food. So what do you say to your clients or your patients when they come in and they go, how often should I eat, Paul, especially if it's a carnivore diet?
1: I generally recommend twice a day. And I think that it depends on goals. I think that for a lot of people, having a time-restricted eating pattern and some degree of a fasting window on a daily basis is probably a good thing. For the clients that I have that are looking to lose weight, I'll recommend longer periods of fasting. And we can talk about that on a future podcast. But on a day-to-day basis, I will generally eat in a six to seven hour window and the rest of the time will be fasting with only water. And because I'm eating a carnivore diet and it's moderately high in fat and pretty darn satiating, I really cannot eat more than that. I don't even want to eat more than twice a day to tell you the truth. I have no desire. But twice a day works well for me. Some people do once a day. Occasionally when people are doing once a day, they run into not enough calories. If we're not giving our body enough calories, that can be a major problem. And you know that's how we lose weight and that's a good thing in the short term. But over the long term, or if somebody is trying to maintain weight or gain weight and they're calorie restricting, they're not going to feel great. So it's hard for me. I could never get enough calories for the day in one meal. But I do occasionally eat one meal a day if I'm running around or maybe I'm doing a longer fast or if something happens, um, then I will eat one meal a day. But usually I eat two meals a day. I think that's what works best for people. I think having a time-restricted eating window works well. And yeah, and that that is, that that's the best thing to do on a daily basis. Now you can go back and forth about what time of the day you make that time restricted eating window. There are some studies that suggest that if you end your eating earlier in the day and allow more time between your last meal and sleep, that could improve your sleep quality. That makes sense to me. I don't think it's a good idea to eat late. And a lot of people with whoop bands or aura rings can show that they sleep poorly if they eat late at night or they don't have quite as much deep or REM sleep, et cetera, et cetera. So it's there for people, but I think as a general rule, I recommend people start with two meals a day. And that's usually, depending on their work schedule and how flexible it all is, could be breakfast and and a late lunch, could be breakfast and dinner, could be lunch and dinner, and some sort of an eating window.
0: To make it really simple, it's either some meat, well-sourced meat, nose to tail, and some seafood. As those meals, maybe a broth, some good quality water, and go out and have fun for the rest of the day because you're actually going to have a lot more time to have a life because you're not spending it going to the sh- supermarket and going shopping for all of these things. And I guess I'm going to be pretty much out of a job in the future with my cookbooks. <laughs> no, I no, go. no, my, no way, <laughs> oh, my friend. No I'm way. Jo- I'm joking
1: <laughs> <laughs> because there are so many ways that you could help us think about how to make animal foods more creative. Lastly,
0: one of your ingredients for a recipe for life. What is it that you would love to share? With the listeners today, that is sort of a non-negotiable for you or something that you really look forward to doing every day or every week or every year, something that that really resonates for you.
1: I think it's mindfulness. I think that so much of what we're talking about now starts with mindset and understanding what our motivations are. And I think that until we can calm our mind and really sit with ourselves, and this all sounds passe, but it's true for me personally, unless we can really calm our minds and sit with ourselves and really understand what we're after in this life and what is meaningful to us, we can't move forward. I think we have to understand why we're getting up every morning. And I think the best way for most people to do that is just to do some mindfulness meditation and to spend time doing that. I mean, that's that's what I appreciate most out of every day is the times when I can just sit and breathe and whether it's in the ocean when I'm surfing. I mean, I live in a beautiful place in Southern California. I've heard Sydney is quite beautiful. Like, There's so much amazingness around us. No matter what we're
0: eating, we better appreciate it because we're all going to be gone from this earth real soon. Paul, I just want to thank you, mate. I tell you, I love you. And I'm so grateful to have this opportunity to connect. And I know it's been a a jigsaw puzzle to try to get us both (laughs) connected, but thank you so much for your flexibility and just for being you, brother. So thank you so much.
1: Man, I'm so grateful to have been on. I really enjoyed the conversation. And I would just say that if people are curious about me or my work, The best place is carnivoremd.com. You can find information about everything there. And I have my own podcast, which is called Fundamental Health. And man,
0: it's been a pleasure being here. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed the health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional medical, or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions, and nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions, or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.